Well, for those of you who listened to last week's recorded message, you know that I didn't take the usual time and sort of recap all of the confession leading up unto, until, unto where we are in chapter 25. And so I want to do that just very briefly. And, and I do this for several reasons, but one of them just being I want us to become familiar with our confession. Um, just the way that it's laid out and, and it is important that we understand the distinct parts of our confession, but there's something about the way that it's put together that is really fundamental to everything that we believe as Christians. So after covering what has been called first principles in chapters 1 through 6, the confession's largest section, chapters 7 through 20, dealt with all of the details of God's covenant of saving grace to His people in Jesus Christ. And that is the, the heart and soul, uh, some would say the skeleton of the confession, but really of everything that we, we believe. The heart and soul of everything that we are as Christians, the skeleton of all of our beliefs, of all of our practices, is that God has come to us and made a covenant with us in the blood of Jesus. Uh, everything... Everything that we believe, everything that we do, our, our gathering on the first day of the week, our songs, our preaching, everything stems from this fact of history that in time, God the Son took flesh and bled and died for our sins to reconcile us back to God. Uh, any time we, we gather, any time that we do anything, if we want to call it Christian, that must be front and center and clear, obvious, um, undergirding, overlying everything that we do or it's not Christian. That is, what, that, that is the distinctive Christian message. Um, and our confession is, is ordered around that. Chapter 7 through 20, you do the math. However many chapters that is are just expounding to us not, not where we were in sin. That's in, in chapter 6, I believe, that our fall into sin. But then from that, going into what God has done to redeem us, the, the biggest section is just explaining salvation, Christ the mediator, justification by faith, and all those, all those precious truths. Only after going into the details of what we might call the gospel covenant does the confession move to its next section, which has been named God-Centered Living. And you remember these titles are not something that I came up with. I'm borrowing them. But we come out of that gospel covenant into God-centered living. Again, this is helpful to note. Based on the layout of our confession, Christians have always held to certain basic tenets of the faith. The first of them being, the gospel of God's grace comes to men free of charge through the work of Christ alone. Um, when Austin read this morning from the, the parable of the wedding feast, and he just made that simple statement, go out and compel them that they've all, all the, the, the second guests have come in and there's still room. And I, I, I had to restrain myself from just thinking, I want to I wanna write a, an Ian Paisley-esque sermon just on that text. There's still room to compel men to come. And we can, we can offer that invitation free to all men. There's still room. Come. 
and it's free in Christ alone. The second basic tenet that Christians have always affirmed is that that same gospel that we would offer to men free of charge, all men indiscriminately, that same gospel, once appropriated through faith, leads to a way of life. It always produces God-centered living. And it's always in that order. Living never produces salvation. But salvation always produces living. And living is the evidence of our salvation. So you think of those first principles like the doctrines of, of Scripture, the doctrine of God and His attributes, the, uh, the eternal decree of God, God as Creator, uh, God as, as Lord over all, all creation, then that leads into God's covenant with us as His special people. And then that leads into we as His special people living a very special way in this world. Now, in this section of God-centered living, we began with Christian liberty, liberty of conscience. Because of Christ's work for us in the gospel, we have been given Christian liberty. That is the liberty to obey God without restraint and the liberty of conscience that is the freedom to answer ultimately to God alone in all matters of faith and life. We've been set free to say, I answer to God alone and I can obey Him without uh, exception and without uh, eternal consequence freely. I've been set free from the, the, the dictates of men in that regard that led into liberty uh, in the worship and the Sabbath day. That our liberty extends to the worship of God and specifically the worship of God in the assembly. On the Sabbath day, then that liberty extended to the civil sphere where we are free to submit in all things lawful to those in authority over us, and we are free, if we should choose, to participate in the affairs of civil government. Now, in the next chapter, chapter 26, we'll go into uh, the matters of the church, ecclesiastical things. And if we wanted to come out of liberty to that, we could say we are free as Christians to conduct ourselves in, in church matters and ecclesiastical matters according to the dictates of Scripture. And we, we, need, we need not pay any attention to any man's thoughts or additions to what God has said. We're, we're free. Now, so, so again, what we're seeing is the effects of the fruit of, of living in covenant with God. It affects every area of life. Now we come to chapter 25. We're dealing with the issue of marriage. Now because we are assuming the basic Christian ethic in general, the subject of marriage is considered from the standpoint of biblical Ethics. If we want to go, we want to go back to just those first principles. Let's say we we wanted to think about this, maybe not specifically from the standpoint of those who are in covenant with God, but just go back to the first principles. God has revealed Himself in His Word. God is who God is. God is Creator. God has decreed all things whatsoever come to pass, etc. Those things apply to unregenerate men. Those so so even from that, if we went from those all the way to marriage. We can still come up with a, a Christian ethic of marriage even for, for lost men. And it, inform, it informs marriage in general. But because the confession is a confession of Christians in particular, people in covenant with God, and we also see the specifics of Christian marriage. So we might think of it this way. Uh, a Christian view of marriage and then a Christian view of Christian marriage. 
the Bible speaks to both of them. Now, if that doesn't make sense, and hopefully it'll, it'll get cleared up as we walk through it. Now, I want to recap a little bit of last week's recorded message uh, where I covered essentially the first two paragraphs. If you haven't heard that, it's online. The first paragraph I've entitled, The Candidates for Marriage. So let's look at that, and we'll, we'll begin to read the Scripture references here. The Candidates for Marriage. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. The Scripture references first Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is Moses-inspired commentary on the events of Genesis 2 and God creating Eve and bringing her to the man. It says, A man, singular, is to hold fast to his wife, singular. One man, one woman. And the two, where do we get two from? One plus one. One man, one woman. The two shall become one flesh. So in this scenario, or in this instance, one plus one equals one. The two become one flesh, in a sense. The confession also references Malachi 2 and verse 15. The latter part of that verse says, So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Again, notice the language. The wife, singular, of your youth. The one wife that you married as a young man, be faithful to her. One man, one woman. And then there's a reference to Christ's commentary on that Genesis narrative in Matthew chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. I'll read 4 through 6. He answered, this is Jesus speaking, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So here, Christ Himself affirms the Genesis narrative as historical fact, and Christ Himself affirms the divine inspiration of Moses' commentary, because Christ says, He who created them said. Well, when you read in Genesis, it doesn't say God said, it just says, therefore, Moses the author says it. It's, it's Christ saying Moses wrote the very words of God. When he, when he, when he gave that therefore, he was, this was God through Moses explaining the narrative. Now, I would add to those, and I did add to those, uh, Genesis 1.27. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Only two from creation. One man and one woman. And then Romans 7, verses 2 and 3. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So the end of that little paragraph says, at the same time, if your husband dies... You're free to marry. Your wife dies, you're free to marry. Marriage is between one man and one woman for life. 
And I summarized all that by saying, marriage, simply put, is between one man and one woman. Any kind of sexual behavior outside of that kind of union, one man, one woman, for life, is what the Bible calls sexual immorality. And all of that and more can be found nestled in the seventh commandment, Exodus 20, 14, you shall not commit adultery. And we know from the commandments that there is far more packed into a statement than just the statement as it's opened up and expounded throughout the Scriptures. As a matter of fact, this whole chapter on marriage could be traced back to that one commandment, you shall not commit adultery. It's, a, it's sort of a, an opened up and expanding proof that we believe in the abiding validity of God's moral law in all of the commandments, not just the fourth one. We do, we do hold to, a, to an abiding Sabbath, but we hold to an abiding commandment with regard to marriage as well. So that's paragraph one. Paragraph two I entitled The Purposes of Marriage. I'll read it there. Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue, and the preventing of uncleanness. So here we have three purposes for marriage. Number one, mutual help. Genesis 2.18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. The woman was made to be a helper for the man. Now why is that? Because the man needed help. He couldn't do everything by himself. God created woman to help the man. And then having been created, you have a woman who also can't do everything on her own. She needs help. So they serve as a mutual help to one another. So marriage exists for that purpose. A man and a woman can come together and help one another. The second one was procreation. Genesis 1, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. <coughs> And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then at least a part of that is repeated after the fall in Genesis 9.1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then we can go back to that passage in Malachi. Malachi 2.15. Did He not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. God, through godly marriages, is seeking godly offspring. And that's not a, an unbaptist thing to say. Do we believe that they come out of the womb in covenant with God? No. Do we believe that God can bless and does bless godly marriages and the, the use of the means of grace to save children? Absolutely. This is what God wants, godly offspring. We, we know and affirm that God alone creates life in the womb. Again, all this is under this purpose of procreation. We know and affirm God alone creates life in the womb. Post-fall, procreation and childbearing is a thing rife with hardship and pain. If we want to think of this on, on a scale of extremes, you've got just the, the difficult processes of absolutely normal conception and childbearing. Let's, you, let's say you've got a woman, she's never had a, a problem in her life with, with, having, with having children, and yet it's still troublesome and hard. 
because of the fall. That, that's one extreme. The other extreme would go all the way into the realm of the, of, of the fact that some people are not able to have children at all. This is, these are post-fall effects of sin. Those things are in God's hands. It's God who creates life. We, we don't take into our hands the, uh, the responsibility of giving life, taking life, deciding when life should come into be, or deciding when life should leave or should end. Those matters are up to God. Any view of marriage that sees procreation as somehow optional or as something that's in the hands of men is contrary to God's design for marriage. And typically, the tactics that have to be employed to encourage that worldview are simply ways of enjoying the pleasures of the marriage bed without the responsibilities that come along with it. It's very often the exact same thinking as the whoremonger and the woman who walks into Planned Parenthood. Now, are the fruits the same? No. But it's still the same idea. I want the benefits and the, or the, the pleasures of this without the responsibilities that come along with it. And so this is when people take into their, into their own hands the, the, the ideas of procreation, of life, and things like that. So procreation is one of the purposes of marriage. It's why it was created by God, to procreate. And then thirdly, there's purity, the preventing of uncleanness. Uncleanness would be the result of any and all sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 7, 2. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. In other words, to avoid falling into that temptation, Paul says, get married. Verse 9. If they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. You see, there are good, natural desires that men and women have. God has given them to us. But rather than setting ourselves up for failure by, by extending singleness, Paul says, get married. And if you look at verse 5 of that chapter, 1 Corinthians 7, it's interesting. Do not deprive one another except, for, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. We need to understand that the temptations do not vanish when you get home from your honeymoon. That's what he's saying. That, that, those temptations to sexual immorality, we, everybody needs to understand this, spouses. We need to understand the temptations don't just go away just because you got married or, or come back from your honeymoon. Then All of a sudden, all, all of those desires are completely gone. Now that, that, we know that's not true. God's given us marriage for this purpose, to, to preserve purity, to prevent uncleanness. So all of that's recapped. Now we come to paragraph 3. I've entitled this one, Restrictions Placed on Marriage. So remember the confession is giving a, sort of a, a general biblical view of marriage and then a specific view of Christian marriage. So first we have this, this general biblical view of marriage that would apply to all people. Look at paragraph 3. It is lawful for all sorts of people to marry. And then we have this restriction. Who are able with judgment to give their consent. So here's what we glean from this. We believe that all people have the right to marry. Contrary to the teaching of, of uh, the Church of Rome that would say, well, uh, 
men in particular ecclesiastical offices should remain celibate? We say that's not correct. All people have the right to marry. Now, the confession references 1 Timothy 4. You can turn there with me. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now you know how Paul does this when he's talking to Timothy when he says the Spirit says these things are going to happen in the latter days and what he's saying is We've known all along it would be like this in our own day. The latter days begun in, in the days of Paul. So we know that even in his own day, there were some and there still are some who would teach that the, the real holy men are the ones who don't get married. And if you want to be, mar- if you want to be truly holy, then you, you uh, forbid yourself that natural uh, inclination given to you by God. That's not true at all. No, nobody is more holy because they're not married. No one is less holy because they are married. Nobody is more holy because they're married or less holy because they're not married. All people have the right to marry. Secondly, the, 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 the negative side of that truth is we would say marriage is not only for Christians. And here Hebrews 13.4 is referenced in the Confession Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, someone might object and say, well, the all there, let marriage be held in honor among all. The the all there is a reference to the the Christians that, that the author was writing to here. But I would say, number one, that's probably the most accurate way to read this. At the same time, there's a reference to judgment which is not an application to Christians or, or limited to Christians. Judgment for sexual immorality and adultery is not limited to Christians. All people should be taught to honor marriage. We, we wouldn't look at somebody and say, well, you're not a Christian, you're going to hell anyway. Why not heap a little more judgment on there and just defile the marriage bed while you're at it? No, we would say, no, oh, don't, don't, don't compile for yourself more judgment All people should be taught to honor marriage because marriage is not merely a matter of the holy kingdom but is a common kingdom institution. All men, and when I say men there, I'm talking about people, men and women. All men can and should be married and should honor the institution of marriage. Marriage serves to advance the decree of God for the human race regardless of who participates. Every marriage has the potential to produce an offspring that, it, that could potentially be a child, a citizen of the kingdom of God. So it, it should be upheld and, and all people should honor marriage. But the restriction is, we would confess, only people who properly consent to the marriage should be married. And you see that phrase, with judgment. 
people who are able with judgment to give their consent. That would be with clear understanding and discernment of the matter, people who understand what marriage is. Most of us would not encourage our children to pursue a marriage until they are mature, no matter how much they want it. Uh, you, you imagine you've got a six-year-old daughter and you've got a, a 35-year-old mature Christian man and he comes and says, I would like to have your daughter's hand in marriage. You wouldn't go to your six-year-old daughter and say, now listen, honey, he said he wants to marry you. How do you feel about that? She's going to say, yeah. You don't do that. You, you, you tell the man, no, she's not prepared. She can't give consent with judgment. She's not, she doesn't comprehend what all that means. People should never be married against their will. They should be able to give a clear, discerning consent to the matter. Those things apply to everybody. That's just a general Christian view of marriage. Everybody should be able to get married. Um, marriage should be honored by everyone. No one should be forced into a marriage outside of their consent. But then we come to more specifically the restrictions that are placed on God's people. This would be a Christian view of Christian marriage. Picking up with the word yet. Yet it is the duty of Christians to marry in the Lord. And therefore, such as profess the true religion, should not marry with infidels or idolaters. Now we'll stop there. I think this is probably the most obvious restriction. Christians are not to marry non-Christians. Now, we could raise our hands in the room. In this room, people could say, well, I married a non-Christian, and in the course of time, God brought them to Himself. Therefore, we, this worked out for good. Okay, do we, do we use what God can and might do providentially to determine what we ought to do in obedience to His commandments? No. No, we obey God's commands. If God brings a good thing out of sin... Praise His holy name. That's not for us. We, we don't take that into our hands. We obey the commandment. Christians are not to marry non-Christians. Now notice how this is described. I think this is interesting and actually probably more applicable than I had originally thought anyway. The Christian is described as such as profess the true religion. And then you have infidels or idolaters. In fide, that would be an unbeliever or an idolater. Um, unbelievers or adherents to false religions. One who professes the true religion should not marry a person who, is, who makes no profession or is an adherent of a false religion. 1 Corinthians 7.39 says, If a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. That means only another Christian. Christians only marry other Christians. Now compare that with this next statement. Neither should such as are godly be unequally yoked by, by marrying with such as are wicked in their life or maintain damnable heresy. Notice that, that description. Such as are godly. That's another description of the Christian. But notice how that compares with what we just read. These are both, both references to a Christian, both descriptions of a Christian. You've got such as are godly. Just before that it says, such as profess the true religion. Godliness 
has historically been understood to describe true inward piety. It, it does address what comes out, but it addresses the, the outward worship under the assumption that it's stemming from something inside. Internal, what we might call heart religion. That's piety, godliness. It's inside. It's, it's real Christianity. Professing the true religion would be the external manifestation of that. It would be addressing someone's outward way of life. I don't think that we're meant here to contrast a false professor, those who profess the true religion, but they're actually lost, with an actual believer. It, it, they're both descriptions of a Christian. The distinction is, is in who is being forbidden uh, to marry or the one whom they are being forbidden to marry. Infidels and idolaters are people who would openly be opposed to Christianity. They say, I'm, I'm an unbeliever. I don't believe that. Or, I'm an idolater. I worship according to this religion. Someone who's wicked in their life or maintains damnable heresy might not outwardly, openly oppose Christianity. Now you say, well, it says they're wicked in their life. Well, they can be wicked in their life and still say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. And make the profession. They too profess the true religion while their life or some tenet of their faith denies that profession. So, so here's the illustration. You have a Christian man. He professes the true religion outwardly, and he is truly inwardly pious. He is God. In other words, this is a Christian, a true Christian man. He loves God. He fears God. This man knows two women. One of them openly and unashamedly denies the Christian faith. Maybe she's a Buddhist. Maybe she's a Muslim. Maybe she's agnostic. She, she, would, be, she would fall into the category of uh, infidel or idolater. The other woman that he knows, she's been raised in a Christian home. She professes to be a Christian. She goes to church every Sunday. Her Facebook page says God first or something like that. You know, those, those vague things that you're like, say you're not a Christian by, without saying you're not a Christian. Some just very general statement about a, a theistic worldview. God first or something. She, she has all of that stuff. Outwardly, she, she doesn't oppose Christianity. But her private life is not one of true piety. There's no true inward godliness in some aspect. Or maybe she does appear very godly, but she's a oneness Pentecostal. So she's, she's a heretic. She, she holds to, to the ancient heresy of modalism. She looks godly. She does, she's not opposed to Christianity, but she's a heretic. She holds to a damnable heresy. Or maybe she doesn't hold to any heresy, but when you get to know her, you realize her faith is all outward and external. There's, there's no inward, there's no true heart religion here. Now, which of these women does this man, uh, which of this man, or w w which of these women should this man consider for marriage? The one who is openly hostile to Christianity or the woman who is openly receptive of Christianity, but she's not a true Christian, or she holds to some heresy? The answer is neither. Neither of those women are an option for this man. Those who profess the true religion and are godly, that is Christians, have no business marrying either rank pagans or hypocrites. And this is what we have to be very careful in our culture. 
Just like in the 17th century, many if not most of the people that we're going to run into around here are going to profess Christianity. They're going to give some lip service to Christianity. They're not going to say, I hate Christians, I'm against that, I worship, you know, Asherah or, or, or something. They're not going to say that. They'll give the lip service. When you get to know them, you find out there's no inward piety here. There's no godliness. This person doesn't love God. That person's not a candidate for Christian marriage. Christians can be unequally yoked with people who profess to be Christians. That's what this is, this is talking about. We have to um, differentiate at the same time. No, both are restricted. Now, now imagine how this broadly Christian view of marriage and the specific view of Christian marriage might be applied. Number one, do you know any single people who are not Christians? Think about this. The single person that you know who's not a Christian. I hope that in their presence you would speak very highly of marriage and honor marriage and commend marriage and encourage them to be married and to honor their marriage vows when they get married. I also hope that you would set Christ forth before them that they would be saved. I also hope that you would never encourage a lost single person to find a good Christian husband or a good Christian wife. They, that, that doesn't go together because then you would be setting the other believer up for an unlawful marriage. We can encourage marriage and speak highly of it and push them to Christ and push them towards a, a godly worldview, but never encourage them to marry a Christian. Then think of single Christian people that you know. Around single Christian people. Speak highly of marriage. Don't, don't degrade marriage in the minds of single people by you know, verbalizing all of your complaints and moaning about the difficulties. Everybody, anybody who's married knows marriage is, it has its hardships. Okay, keep that to yourself. Take them to the Lord. Don't talk about them to other people. Speak highly of marriage. Encourage that single Christian person to get marriage. And warn them of the dangers of marrying unequally. Warn them. They say, well, I found a person. Uh, he says he's a Christian. Okay, what does that mean? Or, or better yet, bring him around. Let, let's find out about the, the true inward piety of this person. If a Christian single person gives the appearance of pairing up with someone, you know what pairing up means, the, the relationship... Their, their eyes, their proverbial eyes uh, that are, as a single person, you know, all over the world, you know, they just see everybody. And all of a sudden, over the course of a few days or weeks, all of a sudden their eyes become closer and closer to one another to where they begin to sort of, you know what pairing up is. They begin to pair up. It's not a thing, but everybody knows it's a thing. You know it's a thing. You wouldn't say, I only have eyes for you. But in your mind, you're thinking, I'm pretty sure I only want to have eyes for you. So there begins to be this pairing up. So if you, if you notice that in a single Christian person, then ask them, that person that you appear to be pairing up with, are they a Christian? If so, how do you know that they are a Christian? I see that you're pairing up. Are you ready and willing and prepared to marry that person right now? And is that person ready and willing and prepared to marry you right now? If the answers are no, then the pairing up of eyes, that drawing to one another needs to slow down, back up. You don't know the things that you need to know to be pairing up in that way. The earliest conversations 
and observations between two people like this should be for the purpose of determining if the other person is a true possessor of Christ. We're not looking for professors of Christianity. We're looking for possessors of Christ. Do you have Christ? Those are the earliest conversations. And if you can't figure that out in one or two conversations, either they're not a Christian or somebody in that, in, in that uh, pair is not prepared for marriage because you're not even at, you don't even know the right questions to ask out of the gate. Start out of the gate. If you're thinking of marriage, beginning to, prepare, to pair, there are questions that are asked right out of the gate. Let's get to the point. I'm not here to play around. These are the things I need to know. If, if we can't get sufficient answers here, then there's no reason for us to go any further. But when that pairing goes further than it should... Without those things being answered, you, you get into in dangerous territory. You get into those places where it's like you, you, you realize, well, I need to break it off, but I kind of feel bad. I might hurt their feelings, things like that. You don't want to be there. So if you know Christian single people, encourage them, speak highly of marriage, warn them of the dangers of marrying unequally. Think about our children. Our children. Around our children, we should speak very highly of marriage. We should encourage our children to get married. Children, get married. It's good. Marriage is a good thing. Now, I tell all my daughters, if you don't want to get married and you want to live with me forever, that is perfectly fine. But I'm assuming they're going to be married. Marriage is great. Marriage is good. Speak highly of marriage. Encourage them to get married. Prepare them for marriage. All the while setting Christ before their eyes that they may be saved. And even now, as they profess to be Christians, I think it's safe to encourage them to pursue a Christian spouse and warn them of the dangers of marrying outside the faith. I wouldn't say to my children, well, I'm, I'm not certain that you're born again yet, so just go find some lost people to hang out with. No, I would say if you, you profess to be, belong to Christ, here's one of the evidences of that. You're going to pursue a Christian in your in your for marriage. That's how these things can be applied. Now the, the confession also references Nehemiah chapter 13. I'll read verses 23 to 27. It says, In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Now, we have to remember that the issue here is not ethnicity, strictly speaking. The issue here was one of religion. In order to preserve the lineage from Abraham to Christ, 
there had to be a line from this family. To begin to marry outside of that line, this lineage would have essentially dispersed and evaporated into the nations. It would have been gone and lost forever. These same standards apply for all believers today. Not ethnicity, but faith. We do not marry outside of the Christian faith. Now, if somebody wanted to say, uh, and I've, I've seen this text used against interracial marriage, I think that's ridiculous. But if someone wanted to say, well, there are essentially two races, the race of Adam and the race of Christ, then I'm all, I'm all uh, for the opposition to interracial marriage. Don't marry outside of Christ. Now, ethnically, biologically, where they come from in the world, who cares? But they must be of the Christian faith. And I would, I would almost argue that, that within the Christian faith, very many times the farthest that we go outside of our ethnicity is usually the greater picture of gospel uh, work in the world. The, the dividing of the nations was an effect of the fall and man's sin. Uh, to, to bring nations back together in Christ is, is I think, what God is ultimately going to do. We see that in the new heavens and the new earth. So, in conclusion, all people... In conclusion to paragraph 3. All people can and should get married... Marriage is not only for Christians, it's for all people. Marriage is not only for laymen, but for all Christians. However, Christians are to marry Christians, and unbelievers are to marry unbelievers. Most of you know our, our position as a church is that, and this is just to really kind of free us up from a headache, um, I, I, the elders don't perform marriages for people who are not members of this congregation. That is, both of them have to be members. Now, that you say, well, that's really going to reduce the number of weddings you do. Exactly. Um, but what the, what the world wants to force on the church is to participate in all of their evil. We, we want to avoid that. Well, in order to avoid that, you have to take seven steps backwards and say, okay, fine, we're not going to perform any ceremonies for anybody who's not a member of this church. And that... Of course, we set the boundaries for membership at you must be regenerate, etc., etc. Um, if two unbelievers came to me and they wanted to be married, would I, would I perform their, their marriage ceremony? No. Would I drive them to the courthouse and pay for their marriage certificate if I had the money? Sure. Go get married. By all means, marriage is great. I'm not going to do it, but you ought to be married. Paragraph 4. Prohibitions. In marriage. So there's restrictions and then there are prohibitions. I'll read that paragraph. Now, marriage ought not to be within the, the degrees of consanguinity or affinity forbidden in the word. Nor can such, such incestuous marriages ever be made lawful by any law of man or consent of parties so as those persons may live together as man and wife. Now there are big words here, uh, and strange words, consanguinity or affinity. You sort of get a hint at what they mean by the, that little phrase, such incestuous marriages. Consanguinity is defined as the relation of persons by blood. The relation or connection of persons descended from the same stock or common ancestor. 
It is lineal or collateral. Lineal would be straight down the bloodline. Collateral would be side to side in the bloodline. That's consanguinity. There'll be relations, relationships established by blood, biology. Then the word affinity is the relation contracted by marriage between a husband and his wife's kindred or a wife and her husband's kindred. So this would be a relationship established by law or established by marriage. We, we use the phrase the in-laws, the people that you get as your family because you got married. And typically you don't refer to your in-laws as the you know, fourth cousin of your wife. Your in-laws, we typically know who those are, the, the nearest relationships of, of your husband or your wife. Now, so that, that's what it's saying. Marriage ought not to be within the degrees of consanguinity, biology, or affinity, that would be legal relationships, forbidden in the Word. Now, we know that if we go back far enough, we're all related at some point. If you go back far enough in the line. That's why the term degrees is used here. There is a line of degree which once crossed that marriage is lawful even though with enough effort we could discover a relationship by blood or marriage or birth or, or both. Now the, the confession, it's interesting, it just references Leviticus 18. You know, Just go read that chapter and you'll see. Leviticus 18.6 says, None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. That phrase, close relatives, is literally His flesh. So this would be someone who shares a near flesh and blood relationship. Don't approach any of your flesh, your near flesh, to uncover nakedness. That would be parents, siblings, parents up and down, siblings, side to side, collateral, grandchildren up and down, aunts and uncles, and in-laws of those types of relationships. Now the argument here, and I'm going to try to explain this, is I'm, I'm still a little confused on how all this works. The argument here is that to marry in these near degrees would alter a blood relationship or a legally established relationship. And we have to remember here that God says that marriage and physical consummation establishes a one flesh union. So in-laws in, in that sense become same flesh. My wife is one flesh with me. So then her, her flesh becomes legally my flesh. So that, that establishes a, re, a relationship that ought not to be broken by another marriage. Um, I marry my wife. She becomes one flesh with me. Her sister becomes my sister-in-law. For me to then marry my sister-in-law would break the sister-in-law relationship and would try to introduce a new relationship of husband and wife. And God says we don't, we don't break those relationships when they're established like that through another marriage. That's, that's the picture. The New Testament confirms this, Mark 6, 18. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, was Herod's brother's wife his blood relative? No. She, she could have been the most distant person in the land from him biologically. But she had married his brother. 
She had become one flesh with his brother, and therefore to, to marry her was to marry his legal sister and essentially to commit incest with his brother or his legal sister. 1 Corinthians 5.1, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Now, it doesn't say a man has his mother. More than likely, this is not this guy's biological mother. This is probably his father's wife, his stepmother. A legally contracted relationship there. Because of marriage, this woman has become his stepmother, his legal mother, and has become one flesh with his father. And so for this man to have his father's wife was to commit sexual immorality with one who was his legal mother and incest with essentially his father, his same flesh. The, the, these degrees are not to be crossed. Now, James Durham, he unpacks a little, a little of this, and, and I, I've tried to understand it. <clears throat> but the way he puts it is, you may not marry, these are general terms, your great-grandmother or grandchildren down, down that straight line, you may not marry in that straight line, or your sister, side, side to side. That would be collateral consanguinity. But you can marry your first cousin. He says one of those is a direct biological line, your grandmother, grandfather, straight up, straight up and down that line. The other is a direct biological line sideways, brothers and sisters. But for your, your cousin German, your first cousin, you would have to go back up the line, over one, and down one, and that doesn't infringe on any bloodlines or one flesh unions. And so if you want to marry your first cousin, by all means, it's lawful. Now, again, I think we have enough people to choose from. Most of us are not so, uh, are, are so uh, uh, limited in our choices that we say, well, I guess I have to marry my first cousin. But if somebody does, biblically speaking, it's acceptable. So, here's what we learn. How seriously God takes marriage and the family and the products of marriage and family, like one flesh unions and uh, the relationships established through marriage with in-laws and things like that, God sees all of that as, as a very serious thing. It's not a light thing that you, you uh, marry into and receive a sister-in-law or a brother-in-law. That's, that's not a small thing to God. He says that's a relationship established that you are not to break. God desires that the marriage bed be undefiled. God desires that one flesh unions be left unbroken. What God has joined together, let not man separate. And I think, going back far enough, God desires that men spread out and cover the earth. That's what the way it was from the beginning. That was His desire. Don't stick to this little line and marry family to family to family to family, but spread out. Cover the earth. And, and again, what this does is it, it works in the eternal decree of God to populate a planet of people, potentially redeemed souls, jewels in the crown of Christ. So, in closing for real, when we protect marriage, we protect the, the family as a whole, the whole thing. When marriage and family are honored, it benefits the entire society. The whole society is benefited when we honor marriage, we honor the institution of the family, 
When marriage and family are destroyed, the entire society suffers and will eventually collapse. And that's what we're watching in our world right now. We're watching our society collapse because we've refused to honor marriage and the family. And I've said it many times. What I heard growing up and it was really popular to say is, you know, all these kids growing up without their fathers. It's not going to work out. All these kids growing up without their fathers, growing up without their fathers. Most of these kids grew up without their mothers too. Their mothers weren't at home. They grew up without father and mother. The family, though, though it was, it was, um, it had the appearance of a true family unit, but it wasn't. They weren't really there. Dad wasn't there. Mom wasn't there. The family was not honored and 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 held very high in people's priorities, and that has led us to where we are now, where we're, we're trying to fight the battle line to defend. The fact that a man can't be a woman. Like that, the battle line has moved so far that we're like, well, let's just try to get him to agree that a man has to be a man. We're, we're decades past where the actual battle ought to have been fought. We gave up the battle. Now we're fighting, we're, 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 we are, we're so far down, we're watching our society collapse because of it. Our views, I would say, of, of our church and churches like ours, our views of marriage, courtship, family, and children, and those types of things are very strange to our society and very strange to most evangelicals, people that we know of, most of the Christians that we know of. When we tell them what we believe and what we do and how we are, they look at us like we, like, like we are the, the, the product of, of a union of first cousins. They look at us really strange. Right? They look at us like we're crazy. My encouragement would be, don't budge a single inch on these matters. Don't give up any ground. Look at me like, you're, like I'm crazy all day long. Hold the line with our children. Teach our children the same thing and, and, and pray that the Lord will take the things that we have attempted to honor and attempted to restore and in our children take them even further so that maybe by His mercy, perchance, the battle line can be dragged back a little bit to where it ought to be. But again, we, we have, we're, we're so far down this line of fighting, it, it's really, we're fighting insanity with, with just a, trying to get a little bit of reason into people's minds. So, so don't budge. If people don't understand, try to explain it to them. But at the end of the day, uh, it's been said by many, just keep procreating. In 20 years, we got them outnumbered. We win. Um, and that's, that's, that's God, according to God's design. Let's pray and then we'll stand up and sing.